0: Peace be with you. Okay, cool. I wasn't sure if you guys still did that, so. (laughs) Welcome to Sojourn Heights. Uh, If you don't know me again, my name is Marshall Dallas. Uh, I am one of the Sojourn Houston pastors. I belong to uh, your sister congregation down in Montrose, and I bring you greetings from them. So uh, know that you are uh, held in high regard by them. We're so grateful to you for uh, your ongoing support and your prayers uh, and your care for us as you uh, birthed us really just just a, a short three and a half years ago. And so um, it's always great for me uh, to be able to come back and sort of visit what was uh, my home for a brief two years before Uh, setting out to plant in the Montrose neighborhood so again thank you for your faithfulness to Jesus to his word uh, and ultimately to what he has called us to do in uh, making disciples multiplying parishes and planting churches throughout the city of Houston so uh, the Lord be with you in that and again greetings uh, from your brothers and sisters in Montrose if you're a a guest this morning and uh, you're not quite sure how our churches interact and things like that, I just encourage you to uh, take advantage of uh, the connection tables there in the back. We'd love to talk to you a little bit more about what that looks like, but more importantly than anything, I would just highly encourage you uh, to take one of the steps of uh, connecting to this community here. Uh, We really do believe and hope and pray uh, that the church will be first and foremost known as a people to belong to rather than simply an event to attend. With that said, we're going to continue uh, our second week in the book of Galatians. And as we said last week, time after time, the Apostle Paul writes letters in order to both defend and clarify the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in keeping with this year's overarching theme of revival, we go to Galatians because if we are to experience revival, we must... Be clear on what the gospel is and have the courage to defend it. And so last week we saw clearly Paul's angst, his urgent concern for the people of the churches in Galatia, that the gospel of grace both to the Jew and to the Gentile would be clear to them, clear in terms of what it requires of both of them as Jew and as Gentile. And in this situation particularly, Paul calls for a defense of Gentile inclusion in spite of their refraining from Jewish traditions. And this week, Paul will continue that clarification, continue that defense of Gentile inclusion using his own personal story as a rhetorical tool to show the Jewish majority their error. So let's pray Briefly for my sake, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, again, we're grateful to be here this morning. Thank you for gathering your people from different corners of the Houston Heights and different corners of uh, the greater Houston area. Lord, we um, are ultimately so grateful, Father, that as we walked in the room this morning, Lord, we walked into a place where we find fellowship in the reality that we are broken and that we are in need. And Lord, today you purpose to provide yourself for us. And you've done so as we've sung the words of Scripture, as we've read the words of Scripture. May you also do so, Lord, as we hear from your word now and as we approach your table in a few moments. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11, this is what it says. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, in verse 1 of this very same chapter, told us that his role as an apostle was not a role that someone had anointed him with, a, another, another man, another human, nor was it something that he had appointed for himself, right? Essentially what Paul is saying is that I didn't just look in the mirror and one day decide to be an apostle. I am an apostle by virtue of the grace of God, the appointing, the anointing of God himself. In much the same way, now in verses 11 and 12, Paul makes it clear that it's not only his apostolic station, his title as apostle that he has received from God, but it is also the message that he preaches as an apostle, that he has received directly from God himself. This gospel is not man-given. It's not something that he has invented himself, but rather a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in this first chapter, what we see Paul doing is, is Paul is anchoring both his role and his message in the direct revelation, the direct giving of God himself. And in order to illustrate that for us, he's going to give us some details about his story, which I think oftentimes when we come to narrative in the Bible, it's almost kind of like, okay, let's Get to the stuff that I really need to know, you know? I don't need to know that Paul was here for three years and then here for 15 days, not 14, not 16, but 15 days, right? And I don't need to know necessarily who he met with or why, right? I'm just trying to work through this Bible reading plan, and I need to get to the good stuff. And yet, I would argue that these details are telling us something powerful, something important, and so let's engage with them. In verse 17, we find out that after receiving Christ, after having this revelation totally upend his entire life, that he doesn't consult with anyone, but rather he goes away into Arabia, into Damascus, the the place where he had come to faith, the place where he had so eagerly persecuted Christians previously. And And then it tells us that, after receiving Jesus and after preaching this gospel in Arabia and in Damascus particularly, that only after those three years did he go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is, Peter, the leader of the apostles. And that after those three years, he went to Jerusalem, he met with Cephas, he met with Peter, and he was there for a brief period of 15 days before Moving along on his merry way, or if you know Paul's life, maybe not merry, but he went along on his way to Syria and to Cilicia. So again, why is Paul sharing these details with us? I think he's doing two things. And both of them are essentially reinforcing what he has already told us in these first 12 verses of chapter 1. He's making it clear that the gospel that he preaches is not man's gospel. It is not something that he has fabricated on his own, because if it were, it should have varied from that of the original apostles. And yet, even after three years of preaching his gospel, he arrives in Jerusalem and he is received, he is welcomed, both by Peter and by James. And we'll go on to see actually later in chapter 2 that all of the apostles eventually meet Peter and all of them affirm this gospel that he is preaching. And so it's not man's gospel. It's not something that he was taught in that one, he was already preaching it for three years, but then even the time that he spends in Jerusalem is short. It's 15 days. It's not enough time for him to be learned in the traditional sense of the word. Nobody here has gotten a four-year degree in 15 days, And so what Paul is relating to us by the details of his story is that there is an amazing and unifying work of the Spirit at hand. In that you have these apostles who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus in flesh and blood, saw him die, saw him resurrected, now welcoming in someone who was not there, who was not a part of those things, who has been preaching the gospel now for three years apart from their authority, but who shares the same message. Indeed, the same calling to be an apostle. That's amazing. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but if you've ever played telephone, like that's complicated enough as it is. Now imagine playing telephone where you actually don't know the the original phrase at all. And by the way, there's no telephone and you're thousands of miles away from each other. Like it's a work of the Spirit, right? This is God at work. That's the case that Paul is making. He's not trying to impress us here. He's not trying to say, look at everything that I've done apart from the blessing of the apostles. You should respect me. No, no, no. What he's saying is, look at what the Lord has done. These things are not just coincidences. This is a powerful work of the Spirit. And remember that, again, Paul is making a case for why the churches in Galatia should should be listening to him. Because his authority is somewhat in question at this point. And so he wants the Galatians to know, and he wants us to know by extension, that his call to this radical unity between Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian is not just a pet sociology project that he thought up one morning when he was brushing his teeth, but that it's a direct outworking of this God-given, spirit-empowered gospel of Jesus. And so, Paul is not a social justice warrior, he's an apostle that's been appointed by God, not only to the nations, but for the nations, so that the promises of God to Abraham might be fulfilled in a multitude of every tongue, tribe, and nation. So this is what happens in revival. This kind of situation that's happening in Galatia, it, it, like all of our New Testament literature is revival literature. It's telling us about this, this first century church that has been revived by the power of the Spirit, this extraordinary outpouring of His ordinary grace and this is what happens, right? It comes in and it takes your pre-existing paradigm and it dumps it utterly on its head. So Jews are looking at each other going, wait a minute, we're Jews. Can Gentiles be saved? And Paul is saying, yeah. When Christ is revealed in his totality, apart from any stain, when that work of the Spirit happens, it changes paradigms so drastically and yet brings a unity so strange that it creates this significant upheaval. But that doesn't just happen on a corporate level, right? Which is what we talked about last week. Like you have a church here that's kind of broken, it's fractured, it's trying to work through the consequences of this revival, that is utterly and drastically shifting their paradigm. But it also happens on an, on an, on an individual level, and Paul's going to share with us about how that's happened to him in just a few moments. But suffice it to say this, if, if we want revival, then we need revival. First of all, this revelation of Jesus Christ by the Spirit, this thing that only He can do, not something that Paul could manufacture, not some cheap unity, but one of the Spirit. And then when God does that, we need to have the courage to follow it into this upheaval that it so often brings. Let's let Paul show us how it's happened to him on an individual level. This is what it says in verse 13. I did not immediately consult with anyone. And so what does Paul say? Paul says, look, this gospel that is making waves between Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian is the same gospel that flipped my entire paradigm, my entire life, upside down. You wanna talk about a dramatic paradigm shift? Here is this gospel that takes Paul, a Pharisee who would have been most likely not only to turn away Gentile Christians, but to persecute them as those outside of the family of God. This gospel turns that man into their staunchest advocate. So if the problem is that these Jewish Christians are turning Gentile Christians away because they have not fully assimilated into the Jewish traditions, Paul empathizes with the Jewish Christians. What does he say? He says, I know what it's like to be wholly committed to the traditions of our fathers. He says, I know. In fact, there's, there's sort of a, a little humble brag there for a moment. Where he says, listen, not only do I understand, but listen, I was at the top of that heap. I was advancing beyond many of my age. So zealous was I. And so if there were anyone that would stand to benefit from affirming this false teaching, this heresy that's taking place in the church at Galatia, it would be Paul. It would be Paul as an Israelite, a true Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, raised a Pharisee, an Israelite studied under one of the most respected leading Jewish thinkers of his time, the Rabbi Gamaliel, belonging to this sect, the Pharisees, who were created as a a sect in order to combat, to fight against the growing secularization of Israel. The most zealous for the law of God, Paul says, I was the most zealous of the most zealous. And so if a former, well-known, respected Pharisee is not imposing any Jewish traditions on the Gentiles that are converting by virtue of the gospel that he's preaching, neither should any Jewish Christians. You see, Paul had everything to gain from his incredible Jewish pedigree. And yet in Philippians chapter 3, he tells us that now whatever gain he would have had from that heritage, he considers a loss for the sake of knowing Christ or for the sake of Christ himself. And so again, what's Paul doing in relating to us us, his story? Paul is rhetorically inviting the church at Galatia and us, by extension, to imitate him. That we should imitate Paul in allowing this singular gospel to shift our paradigms completely on both a corporate and an individual level, even if it means that we're starting to mess with something that is at the very core of who we think ourselves to be, right? Judaism, Pharisaism was everything to Paul, and yet when the gospel comes, it does not abide any rivals. It's all a loss now for the sake of Christ, for the sake of knowing Christ, the surpassing greatness of knowing this Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that's what happens in revival. Revival. These paradigm shifts happen on both a corporate and an individual level where we begin to understand not only how God relates to us differently, but how we relate to others differently in light of this good news that we have a Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of the Father. And I think ultimately what Paul is getting to is this. Paul believes that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough to empower that drastic paradigm shift that he's asking the Galatians to take up. To empower it and actually bringing it to light, bringing it to mind, but also to, to, to sustain this church, this young church, through that upheaval. Through figuring out all of that Cultural baggage. And so that's really where I want to bring us, I think, as we, as we conclude. And that if we're Christians in the room, I, and I think this is true, if we're Christians in the room, we believe that the gospel is good news, right? Not a groundbreaking statement. But here's the follow-up question. All of us, if we're Christians in the room, we believe the gospel is good news, but but do we believe it is good enough news? Let me explain what I mean by that. Do we believe... That this gospel of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of the Father, do we believe that this good news is good enough to irrevocably change the life of someone who has zero social or cultural advantage to gain from doing so? Because that's what's happened to Paul. There was no social, no cultural advantage for him to convert from Judaism to Christianity. There was no social or cultural advantage for him to become a follower of Jesus, much less an apostle of Jesus. And yet the gospel is good enough to overcome that reality in Paul's life. That's why he says, I consider it a loss for the sake of Christ, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. We should take so much encouragement from his story that he's telling us this this evening. Because Paul went from murdering Christians to pouring himself out for Christians as a drink offering. We continue to flesh this out. Do we believe that the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is good enough to reconcile two seemingly irreconcilable people groups? who have been pitted against each other now for centuries in Galatia. We believe that. Do we believe that the gospel is good enough to be worth abandoning everything that might be keeping us from this drastic paradigm shift that the gospel so often and so inevitably brings? Or is the gospel just good news to the people whom it offends the least? A fair question. Let's give you some modern day examples. Do we believe that the good news is good enough for the human trafficker who in following Jesus would abandon all of his income? Not to mention the other things that he's leaving behind. Do we believe the gospel is good enough for the embezzling executive who in following Jesus would confess, repay the embezzled funds, and likely go to jail? There's no advantage, not socially, not culturally, to that person following Jesus. Do we believe the gospel is good enough for the atheist who in following Jesus would lose not only intellectual credibility among his peers, but likely would lose some of those peers themselves? Let me give you a personal example, because I think, like most sermons, I need this sermon just as much, if not more, than anybody else in the room. The reality is that I tend to walk around the neighborhood of Montrose with what I perceive to be a giant target on my chest, because in my neighborhood, I'm the cultural outsider. I'm the bigot, non-affirming, intolerant, backwoods traditionalist that should just move out. There is a comfy, cozy place in the suburbs for you. And often, if I'm honest, so this is confession time right now, y'all be gentle with me. Often, if I'm honest, that makes me pretty reticent. To share not only my occupation, that of pastor, much less to share the gospel that compels it. And so the reality, brothers and sisters, is that I believe the gospel is good news. But I often also believe it's not good enough. Do I believe that the gospel is good enough for the LGBT person who in following Jesus would be called a celibacy? Do I believe Jesus' good news is good enough to be worth challenging someone's entire identity structure? Intellectually, yes. Functionally, not nearly as often as I would like to. And so the reality is that that is a layer of unbelief in my life that needs to be shattered by a revelation of Jesus. I need revival. And my guess is that I'm not the only one who struggles with this, and so my guess is that we need a revival. We need the ordinary grace of God poured out to us in extraordinary measure so that we might believe this gospel and that we might believe that it is good news not only to those whom it offends the least, but to those whom it costs the most. And so we've been praying for revival a lot this year. At least we have it, Sojourn Montrose. I believe you guys have joined us in that. And so let's be clear about what we're asking for. Because when the singular gospel breaks in, it will mess with us. What we're asking for in revival is we're asking for a gospel that is not simply taught, but one that is revealed. Only the Spirit can do that. There's a distinct difference between a revival that is worked up and a revival that is prayed down. We're asking for this gospel not simply to be taught from the stage, but to be revealed by the Spirit and received by sinners, ourselves included. And we're asking that God would align us to his words so fully that real corporate and personal upheaval would be a necessary consequence of following him. Listen, brothers and sisters, if it costs us nothing to follow Jesus, then that is a red flag. But that we would know that we would know that God is in the midst of that upheaval, that in the upheaval in Paul's life, he is working God's glory, right? That's what it says in verse 24, that they glorified God because of Paul. That in the upheaval, that in what is the momentary disunity, as unity is being wrought by the Spirit, the glory of God is coming among us. And so what we're asking for is this real upheaval, meaning that there are things we always thought were one way that the gospel will clearly and consistently tell us are another way. And that will take a humility that is utterly inconsistent with Pharisaism. And then finally what we're asking for is, is that God would grant to us minds and hearts that know that the gospel of Jesus is enough. That it is sufficient for every single person who walks in that back door, who walks into our living room, who we share a cubicle with, that it is really and truly enough, and that we would believe it boldly and courageously enough that we might give ourselves for their sake. And so, brothers and sisters, the call this evening is quite simply to believe To believe that there is, in fact, as Paul says, grace and peace from God and from Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of the Father. And to believe that reality, to believe that truth, even when it messes with the traditions of our fathers that we may be zealously pursuing in the moment. To believe that even when our friends or our family or our coworkers seem beyond the reach of this gospel's power. And so let's believe and pray fervently for a revelation of Jesus that upends our paradigms so that many are saved, so that God might be glorified. And may God use the means of revival to do it. Let's pray. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Lord, you spoke, and things came into being. We should be in awe of that power. And we should find great rest and great comfort when we come to understand that that power is not only leveraged in creation, but it is leveraged in this good news of the gospel, as Romans tells us, that this gospel is your power unto salvation. And that is for all who would believe. So Lord, I pray for those of us who are Christians in the room this evening. Lord, um, if we have believed a weak gospel, Father, would you kindly and mercifully rebuke us? Would you remind us, God, that you are sovereign and good and that your promises will never fail to come to pass? And Lord, you are working your promises in the world through your church. And so we should find great confidence in that reality. And Lord, I pray for those of us in the room who are not Christians this evening. Lord, who may have been taught the details of the gospel, but do not know the Savior of the gospel. Pray, Lord, that tonight would be the night that a revelation of Jesus Christ overwhelms them to the very deepest core of who they are, and that they might see that this gospel is indeed good enough, no matter what it costs us. Be gracious to them, Father. Remind them, Lord, that you do not stand over them as some towering, unknowable greatness. But Lord, in Jesus, you have come to us and you have made yourself gentle and lowly in heart. And you bid us come that we might find rest. And Lord, I pray that as we come to the table, that as we take in the bread and as we drink of the cup, God, that we would taste and see that you are good, but that we would also know that in your provision, not only of this sacrament, but of the gospel that accompanies it, you are enough, sufficient. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every Sunday, God welcomes his children to come and share a meal with him. This meal is called communion or the Lord's Supper. And it's for every person who trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. It's at the communion table that God communes with us and we commune with one another. And there's absolutely an element of mystery to this meal and we want to embrace that mystery. There is absolutely more than meets the eye when it comes to communion. As we partake of the bread and the cup, we receive Christ and all of his benefits. We have our faith nourished and we get a foretaste of the heavenly feast that awaits us. It's at the communion table that Christ sustains us. He meets our needs. He is good enough. And so, brother and sister, if your shame is piled up so high you see no way around it, the good news is that Jesus is good enough for that. If your guilt is so heavy that you can't imagine being able to stand up under it, the good news is that Jesus is good enough for that. Or if your good works are seemingly endless, but never enough, Jesus is good enough for that. And so as we come to the table, we pray to the Lord with one voice. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We receive this sacrament as a sign and seal of our faith. Christ died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread and this cup, the body and the blood of Jesus. Enable us to eat and drink in faith. To grow up into the fullness of Christ and to be conformed to the image of his self-giving love. Amen. If you're not quite ready to join us for this communion meal, that's okay. There will be a prayer for you on the screen that we would encourage you to meditate upon. But if you are ready, if you do trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, taste and see that the Lord is good, come to the table.
1: Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me Thine all in all. Jesus, pay life up from the dead.
2: sing this final song together. Thank you for worshiping with us this evening. Uh, If you want to know more about life at Sojourn, just a reminder that there's going to be a couple tables in the back and someone there who would love to talk to you and answer any questions you might have. I want to remind those who are followers of Christ that the scriptures, they call us to give generously in the ways that you can give are on the screen behind me now. Also a reminder just about uh, Sojourn Academy that's going to be in here right after this gathering. So if you're part of that uh, uh, class, uh, please help us kind of like Turn the room around and get some chairs out and get some tables out. Um, And if you're not going to be in here, just be mindful of that as they're uh, setting up. So let me finally uh, send us with this benediction. But you, beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit.